Welcome back to Your Average Witch, where we talk about witch life, witch stories, and sometimes a little witchcraft. In this episode, we meet Brandon Weston of Ozark Healing Traditions. He's the author of Ozark Folk Magic, Plants, Prayers, and Healing. His second book, Ozark Mountain Spellbook, Folk Magic and Healing, will be released next year. Brandon and I talk about the similarities between Ozark and Appalachian magic, how to reconcile feelings about Christian religion versus Christian culture, and the passing down of magical traditions in the Ozark Mountains. Before we get started, I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Bright Witch Brews. Sarah Louise came on the show and talked about her practice and her tea, and you have a chance to experience that magic for yourself. Whether you like dark, fruity, and caffeine-free blends like Blue Moon, or a bright and caffeinated fruity blend of green tea and strawberry like Fairy Garden, Bright Witch has a tea for you. For those that love tea variety, blends are even available in tea taster size. These sampler sachets contain about five cups worth of loose leaf blend, perfect for discovering new favorites. You can also find mystical tea tales on her website, brightwitch.com. Follow Princess Penelope's misadventures with magic in her quest to reclaim love and family. You can also take 15% off your order at brightwitch.com using code YAW at checkout. Now for the fun news. Sarah and I are giving away a tin of her delicious blue moon tea and a shiny new mug with the Your Average Witch logo on the front. Be sure to check out our Instagram accounts at instagram.com slash youraveragewitchpodcast and instagram.com slash brightwitchbrews to find out how you can enter. Now let's get to the stories. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks. Would you please introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what you do and where we can find you? Sure. I'm Brandon Weston. I'm a folklorist, writer, healer, witch. Uh, I have lots of different titles, but um, I uh, run a sort of online collective of articles and workshops and lectures uh, called Ozark Healing Traditions. And I have a book out from Llewellyn Worldwide, uh, Ozark Folk Magic, Plants, Prayers, and Healing. Which I love. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I was really surprised at how much it resonated mm-hmm. for me. Because I've never been to the Ozarks, to my recollection. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the Appalachians. I grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. But, man, I just super felt your book. <laughs> <laughs> the, the things you described, I really, really got it. So I was, I'm really excited to talk to you. <laughs> Good, yeah. And, I mean, as you know, there's so many similarities with, with yeah. Appalachia. So, yeah, I've actually heard that from quite a few people that haven't been to the Ozarks, but uh, for some reason they felt home here. And that's really one of the goals of the book was to make people feel at home. Well, I super did, which was surprising to me because I didn't even, I didn't, I had heard of it. I knew sometimes people went there on vacation. I think, you know what? That's not true. I was thinking of the Poconos. (laughs) I don't know geography. (laughs) Well, I mean, you're not far <laughs> off. That I mean, the Ozarks, uh, several different places did uh, were at one point sort of big tourist attractions. It's where I mean, kind of the stereotype of the hillbilly came about from a lot of those places because places like Branson, um, Silver Dollar City, places like that that really had a sort of commercialized view of Ozark culture. Really, I mean, still to this day, bring in tourists from all over. 
Yeah, it used to be kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, these days, most people coming to the Ozarks these days are coming for you know, floating down the river, hiking. We have the second, I think, the second largest single trail outside of the, the Appalachian Trail in Arkansas here where I am. And so a lot of people come for hiking and things like that, So, which is always encouraged. What does it mean to you when you call yourself a witch? Ooh, so for me, um, it's it, witch has been one of those terms that has always been kind of a, it's a way of describing my practice to where people kind of culturally will understand the sort of things I do. Uh, I mean, used to in the Ozarks, witch was always a negative term. And in a lot of cases, some places still in like the more rural areas, of course, it's, it's, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna go to, you know, a small town Ozarks and call myself a witch. Um, but where I am, the, the people that I'm working with, the, the people that, you know, take my classes, things like that, I can spend 15 minutes describing what I do in Ozark terms, or I can say I'm a witch and almost immediately everybody gets kind of the basic understanding you know, so as a witch, I kind of work with somewhat, you know, against the grain practices or practices that have been viewed as being against the grain. I connect with this sort of innate magic in the world. I, I work with spells and rituals and things like that. And so by using the word witch, I can kind of, you know, in a, in a short amount of time, cover a lot of the practice that I do. Um, but of course, I always like using traditional terms too. You know, in the Ozarks, we ha we used to have quite a few that we inherited through Appalachian culture and even further back. So, like power doctor, yarb doctor, granny woman, things like that. And I always like bringing out those terms as a way of sort of reclaiming the the older culture and sort of trying to revitalize it, things like that. But Today, I mean, people don't use those. Even the traditional uh, healers and practitioners, they, I mean, they don't use those terms anymore. You're more likely to hear somebody refer to themselves as a witch or a village witch, kitchen witch, than you are to hear them refer to themselves as the arb doctor or power doctor. So while it's kind of still a, a controversial term in a lot of places in the Ozarks, it is a, a useful term and one that I personally and trying to, uh, you know, help people in the Ozarks have a little bit better understanding of what I mean by which, you know, I'm not going to steal your baby <laughs> or, you know, sour all the milk. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's partly as a time saver for me, but then it's also, I'm, I, I really am trying to shift the, you know, people's understanding of what the witch is, the character of the witch the, the sort of stereotypical folk, folkloric witch versus the reality of the situation. And the, the reality is that, you know, healers have called themselves witches and things like that for, for centuries. It's just they today are better equipped, better able to do that uh, in, in the culture today than they were 200 years ago. It's interesting that to me that nobody, well, not no, I'm not going to say nobody, but that Granny witch would go out of style because that's my goal. Right. <laughs> right. That's who I want to be. I want people to know, oh yeah, that's who she is. 
Yeah. No, that a weird lady down the road. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love that. I love that we, even in the most conservative places in the Ozarks, which there still are quite a few, um, even in these areas, you know, <laughs> people in the community might look at you weird if you called yourself a witch, but it, we're in such a better situation today than our ancestors were, you know, uh, back in the old days in the old Ozarks, you know, you, if somebody called you a witch, like that was basically a death sentence. Like you were exiled from the community. You were not, you couldn't, you wouldn't been able to work if you did have a gift or you were a healer or something like that, you know, no one would ever go to you unless they had to, you know, all of these sort of things. But I mean, we're living today. It's, it's exciting for me to see that even in the more conservative areas, people aren't in danger of losing their livelihoods and things like that, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you can have the goal of being the the neighborhood creepy witch lady and still, you know, being, an, being you know, an active member in the community. Do you have any daily rituals that you perform? And if you do, would you share them with us? Sure. Um, so... I, I take an interesting view of magic in general in my practice. So a big part of Ozark folk magic and healing is this idea of simplicity. And it's it's one of those things that I, I'm really trying to pull out of the practice and show people that, you know, traditionally are my Ozark ancestors who were practitioners, things like that. They viewed magic and ritual as essentially being the individual's connection to the innate magic in the world around them. So certain individuals act as, I guess, filters for this magic. They can manipulate it, things like that. But essentially, everything is is just you and the divine or you and this innate power in the world around you. So really, at the end of the day, you don't need things, uh, according to Ozark folk belief. You don't need objects. These are just tools that help the process along or add to the power, but essentially it's just you and the world. So personally, my, my daily rituals involve sitting in silence. And so this sort of meditation, non-meditation <laughs> sort of thing, where it's just me and you know my innate power, my innate magic, me and my ancestors, me and my guides, and we just sit. And I sit with, you know, within that stream of magic around me. And, you know, sometimes things will pop up that need to be focused on or addressed. But for me, that is the most powerful ritual, that that idea of connecting to something within me that is a part of that magic, something that's in me that has never really been separate from the natural world and that magic of the world around me. And so, yeah, that's, that's my daily ritual. And, you know, it, it, it hasn't always been that way, but through, through my practice and through working with people, it, for me anyway, the, the external stuff has just slowly sort of been shed away. And what I'm left with is that sort of silent center, which is, a really a big place of power and has been for Ozark healers and practitioners for, I mean, even before we were in the new world, <laughs> you know, it goes mm-hmm. back, it has ancient roots. 
So yeah, that's that's my big daily practice is just trying to be with that that silent center. Now you bring up your ancestors and one of my listeners summer had a question about that because she's i I got all my friends to read the book (laughs) Uh (laughs) and she asked is there any ancestor connection or sort of veneration in ozark magic because there doesn't seem to be very much in the book about it about ancestor reverence Mm -hmm. and you actually mentioned that things are going to be lost if it doesn't like actually get passed down mm-hmm. or is this something that you don't that not well not you like the colloquial you that you don't talk about to outsiders like you wouldn't tell us no i think there there's a kind of a separation between the exterior culture and the interior culture and that has i mean that has ancient roots and it goes across you know across cultural boundaries it seems like mountain people across and i mean you know this from appalachian culture mountain people are always very secretive (laughs) and so there's this separation between the outside culture and the inside culture and one of the most famous ozark you know sayings is we always lie to strangers and it's that's not to be taken as you know hill folk are you know there's no mean intention behind that or anything we're not liars we're just protecting stuff (laughs) yeah and it's you know it it really does depend on how close you are to the culture and so i i would say that ozark culture is highly based on ancestor on ancestor veneration but we have to sort of look at the practices in a more of a sort of day-to-day context, I guess. The idea being that in Ozark folk belief, the spirit world is seen as constantly being present. So the the other world, uh, which the other world includes not only spirits of the dead, it includes spirits of the land, the little people who are, are fairies. It includes monsters, witches. It includes both concepts of heaven and hell so angels saints all of the stuff is occupies in this other world and the other world is seen as a mirror an exact mirror of our world and it's seen as being constantly present meaning at any time you know you can accidentally pass into the other world or the other world can pass into this world or if you have the second sight you can see into the other world at any time or dream of the other world things like that and so there's this idea that the spirits of the dead, specifically loved ones, things like that, are constantly present around us to the point where I've met, you know, pretty conservative Ozarkers who talked about uh, getting messages from relatives or seeing signs and, or what's called tokens, these sort of omens, like it was just a day to day occurrence, like getting the mail or something, you know, and so I think that it is so prevalent within the culture that nobody thinks to talk about it. <laughs> you know, nobody nobody thinks that it's odd that you receive messages from your angelic relatives or that you see them in butterflies or certain birds uh, that appear that might be messengers from the other world, things like that. As far as a formalized practice of ancestor veneration, I don't think that there is 
any sort of day-to-day, like we see with other cultures, maybe daily offerings to ancestral spirits at like an ancestral shrine, things like that. It's really common for Ozark families to have, you know, designated areas in the house for pictures and sometimes objects. And you can call these ancestral shrines. I mean, essentially they occupy the same sort of place within the home. Um, This idea that, you know, this is a this is a place of memory, a place of mourning sometimes, and a place where you can maybe connect with those uh, those ancestors or those family members who have passed on and who are now seen as being these sort of powerful beings that can help intercede in our lives. We do have certain times of the year that, you know, they're sort of holidays that have fallen out of fashion and I'm, I'm really trying to get them revived again. So things like Memorial Day and uh, we have decoration days, which happens at different times of the year uh, where traditionally people would go out to cemeteries and, clean off family tombs, graves, grave sites. They would clean up graveyards. They would leave flowers or other items. And in the old days, you know, people would go out on these holidays and they would have picnics in the graveyards next to their family. Um, There's a tradition of telling the tombs, as it's called, this idea that, you know, you go out at certain times of the year and you catch up with your family. You tell them everything that's happened in the family for the past year uh, since you visited the last time, keeping like a Christmas letter, except with your voice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, you say you mentioned Christmas, but like that was a traditional time to do that: Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, just sort of catching up with the family and making sure that the family knows that they're still included in in this, these bonds. And I think that these are really powerful rituals that get written off a lot of times because they don't involve a lot of ritual. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very simple act. And I think people gloss over these things sometimes. Um, I've done it because, you know, when I went out and collected material from across the Ozarks, there was a lot of stuff in the beginning that I missed because people were coding it in different ways. Mm. So for instance, I met this old lady who uh, she, I, I tried to get some remedies, home remedies, plant remedies, and she had a few that she had, but people had been telling me that she was a healer, but she never talked to me about it really. And she kept trying to get me to take these recipe cards uh, because she wanted to teach me some cooking recipes. <laughs> and I, I wasn't really interested in collecting food stuff really. And so I left kind of with a question in the back of my mind of what all of this was about. And I talked to a relative of hers not too long after that. And they were saying that, well, she always has these recipe cards, but she always does things like prayers with the recipes. And she always works, you know, healing stuff into whatever she's cooking. And then she'll take these meals to people and stuff. And I was just like, <laughs> I missed such an opportunity because I was looking for some grand, you know, ceremonial, you know, ritual with all these, you know, specialized implements and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of times it's as simple as praying over a cup of tea or cornbread or, you know, in the case of ancestors and family, sometimes it's as simple as just, you know, the individual talking to their deceased ancestors and keeping that relationship alive 
or going out to the cemetery and, you know, knocking some dust or cobwebs off of a gravestone. And those are, those can be just as powerful acts as, you know, daily offerings of, you know, incense and water and food and things like that, that we see in other cultures. Yeah. I wish I had grown up doing decorating day. And now I live a jillion miles away from any family. So, right. <laughs> I mean, I could go befriend someone, I guess, but <laughs> maybe I will. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this always comes up because I- I'm kind of, you know, in a fortunate position where, you know, going back, most of my ancestors all the way back to the early 1800s are in the Ozarks buried somewhere. <laughs> and uh, with the exception of a few family sort of lines that were immigrants, I don't have access to their grave sites, but you know, this always comes up with people, you know, I'm, I'm not a, near my family. So how can I, you know, have these sort of practices? And, and in a lot of cases, and even in the Ozarks, people have these experiences too. And so I always tell people, you know, if you have photos of them or items from them, or even if you don't have anything, I think one of the most important things that you can do to help your ancestors is taking care of yourself. Because, we, we, you know, even if you don't have physical remains from your ancestors, objects, photos, a gravesite, or anything like that, you are a physical manifestation of your ancestors. You are that object that you are looking for, you know. And so we can help our ancestors by helping ourselves, by keeping healthy, by keeping happy, by, you know, helping out our living family members, things like that. So, yeah, even if you don't have any availability or connection you can i think you can still celebrate these things and uh you know keep keep the memory alive actually when you were had been when you were back when you're talking about they have like specific places in their home with belongings or pictures i have an epiphany every time i do an interview but (laughs) (laughs) i was like holy crap i i have that we have that. I have cypress knees from my granddad. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this is another thing that comes up a lot when I talk about ancestors. People always end up having something. <laughs> so, like I was, I did a workshop one time on spirit world and ancestors and things like that. And I always talk about how, you know, the biggest thing that you can do for your ancestors is taking care of yourself. And, you know, a person who I had been chatting with who was saying, you know, they are a first generation American themselves. They, they don't have a connection back to their home country, um, all of this. But then as we were talking, they realized that, you know, they had uh, like a, a trinket box from one of their ancestors or they had, uh, you know, some kitchen things. <laughs> you know, m- one person had a microwave from their grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, well, yeah, that's weird. But uh, I mean, essentially what we're talking about here are things that remind us of our home and our families. Yeah. And so if the microwave reminds you of good times with your grandparents or whatever it may be, then yeah, I mean, the microwave can be that that focal object as well. Why not? (laughs) It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be anything complicated. And a lot of times, you know, we don't have any of that. And so we can, at the end of the day, we can use ourselves as that focus. I like um, that. That's something that didn't occur to me. I like that a lot. 
And I think it's it's increasingly more complicated as you know people move around the country more often, and you know just this idea that you know we're never or hardly ever around our families really anymore. Like uh, most of my immediate family lives around here, but I have lots of cousins and aunts and uncles who have moved all over the place, and I don't necessarily have physical connections with them anymore, um, but were you know you can you can still have yourself you can still have that connection um and that connection can be a sort of i don't know it can be this branching uh you know focus that connects you back to you know the myriad ancestors living and past that you have and not only you know ancestors of the blood but in the ozarks you know you often see people included in families who weren't blood relatives so you have you know uncle so-and-so who was just a friend of the family (laughs) but that's an ancestor too i mean it's all about you know connecting to those people that well in my opinion connecting to the spiritual entities that really want to connect to you yeah so there's also ancestors of the work so healers traditionally have had these sort of lineages that go well beyond physical the physical world and so you mentioned in the question earlier about losing a lot of knowledge i think that in the old ozarks healers and practitioners were far less likely to talk about um the the real ways they gained their power i think (laughs) one of the most common ways that i've seen is people being visited by ancestral spirits through dreams or through these sort of visionary experiences so a healer learning remedies from an angel uh who happens to be their grandma who is also a healer that's very common and people are talking about it more these days um, because there's there's less of a stigma surrounding that sort of thing in the old days that would reek of witchcraft <laughs> so people you know wouldn't be able to talk about it as much but I think it, it's always been a common thing within the culture because you know there's this view that the other world is so present so you know if I can learn from this physical embodied teacher why can't I learn from an angel or somebody that's in my family that's dead and, and so in a lot of cases, healers that haven't been able to pass down their practice in their lifetime um, or who die suddenly, things like that, they're still able to pass down those practices through dreams and through spirit visitations and things like that. There's a, a, <laughs> I didn't realize how much of the anxiety I was holding about that. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be gone. <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, I feel better. <laughs> There's this idea in uh, in sort of Ozark folk healing, uh, and it's not so present in the culture anymore, but it used to be a very serious part of the culture. This idea that you, the power that you have, the gift that you have is tangible. It's been described to me in multiple, multiple times as like a pitcher of water, like a tea pitcher, or sometimes a well. And so you're born with a certain amount of power. Sometimes your, your well is empty. Sometimes it's full. Um, you can be 
past this power from people by, you know, having people pour their water into your well, or you can gain it from, you know, encounters with spiritual entities, otherworldly entities, all these other methods of initiation. But essentially, you know, used to the power, it was seen as tangible. Once you empty out your pitcher, it's really hard to fill it back up again. So healers who had this power or this gift would wait until they were ready to enter retirement or ready sometimes on their deathbeds um, because they believed that once they passed their power, they would never be able to use it again. And so it creates this sort of uh, stressful situation where you have to time it correct. <laughs> you know, yeah. you want you want to be able to use the power for your own clients as long as you can before you pass it to your apprentice or a family member, or, you know, there's lots of taboos surrounding who you can pass it to, things like that. But in a lot of cases, people would get to their deathbed and not have anybody to pass it to. And that power is, is viewed as just being lost. Um, it's viewed as, you know, in some cases it goes back into that, that the natural world, um, in some stories, it actually can corrupt the healer and they turn into a vengeful ghost that, is, you know, goes and hurts people with the power. Uh, so there was this very real sort of urgency. And in a lot of cases, people would just retire. So they'd get to be, you know, 70 years old and not not feel like they wanted to do it anymore. So they would start looking for somebody to pass the power to. These days, it's it's a lot better. People just sort of pass things down as they want to pass things. There's not such, so much of an urgency. Um, and in a lot of cases, healers will, will have students that they're passing things to while they still are using the power. Um, it seems that the idea that the power is lost for the original holder isn't so much of an issue anymore. It's still, you can still see it amongst, a, you know, some, some healers, isolated healers, but. I'm curious. Uh -huh. I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but for the people who decided to retire and handed it off, I, I'm a, I would think they'd still have it. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I mean, is that a surprise? Or like, oh, wait, what's it's still happening. I I mean, personally, I think that they still have it. I think that it's a statement more than anything, because being a healer is hard work. And I mean, especially if you're in a community where, you, you know, you are actively supporting a lot of people within the community with your work. Um, and in some cases, you know, healers weren't, they couldn't really fit their, what they did in with a nine to five job. So they had to, you know, live very hard lives. And so in a lot of cases, it was a much needed retirement. I um, imagine. But, you know, I've, I've met older, more traditional healers who didn't have any family interested. Um, I personally have been passed a lot of things that I probably will never use, unfortunately, just because I was there at the right time and, you know, they knew I had the gift. And so they passed it to me because they had no one else in their life to pass it to. Oh, that hurts my heart. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's still, and it, you know, it's changing because it seems like, you know, the younger generations, I'm a millennial and, you know, it seems like people in my generation, younger generations are getting really into this stuff. 
Um, and so even, you know, some of the workshops I've done, have been like, you know, always collect things from your elders before it's too late. And I have lots of younger people that are like, oh yeah, I'm already doing that. Don't worry. <laughs> Good. So it seems like, you know, people are becoming more interested in it. I think it's a generational thing, but I mean, there's still just, you know, there's a lot of tragic cases where people's families have moved away. They're not interested in, you know, all the stuff that granny, all the weird stuff granny does and all this. Stuff. So it, yeah, she it is. adopt me real quick. Well, I know, seriously. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's an unfortunate situation because in a lot of cases, it's just, you know, how, how do we connect healers with the right people? Uh, so how do we, people that are wanting to apprentice, how do we connect those people with, people that know things and that's that's the difficult part <laughs> uh you but just carry internet up to the up to the mountain <laughs> seriously yeah and i mean in a lot of these places like it would be just as easy as getting them but i mean a lot of even the more sm- the smaller towns have internet access and it's just a matter of you know having the resources in the right place at the right time but uh, i think what's helping is Younger people are getting interested in it. So they're actually going to elders and talking about this stuff. And also the culture is changing in such a way that healers and practitioners aren't uh, so cautious about sharing their knowledge with people outside the family. Um, So going to local events, storytelling events, and talking about their experiences. Oh, I want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. And so... I, it for me that is exciting the idea that the culture is changing in such a way that maybe we're going to be more likely to support our traditional healers not just healers but traditional artisans and knowledge keepers in general we're maybe we're going getting into a position where we're better able to support them not only you know culturally or spiritually support them, but also being able to support them monetarily too, you know? Yeah. So that they can keep doing what they need to do. And, you know, the community sort of helps them with that. I would love to have some storytellers on here. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's still some out there. Um, sometimes... That's the whole point of this podcast is so right? I can hear stories. <laughs> Oh, I it's love for me. Yeah. It just, I just happened to share them. <laughs> I, I've been very fortunate in being, being able to have a good memory for stuff like that. And so, yeah, there's a lot of stories that I have, you know, from my, my travels around the Ozarks and also just from family. Cause you know, that's, that was kind of the first place I started when I was in, got interested in all this was with my family and collecting stories from them. I had a, I had a great uncle who was a wart charmer. He could, he could buy warts off of people and he was also a blood stopper and all sorts of stuff. And so I've collected quite a few interesting stories about him. Well, I was going to say, do you have any family history with witchcraft? <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. No. So I, <laughs> and it's interesting because I knew about uncle Bill um, and he, he features in the book, uh, and he, he, you know, he's always been a part of my lectures and stuff. He's, he's like one of the big inspirations for me and kind of where I got started with all this. Cause I had no idea any of this was a part of, you know, where I grew up. Um, but he, he was interesting. Yeah. He could buy warts off of people. I've had warts bought off of me. My dad has things like that. And nobody really understood what he was doing. It was just this trust 
that, you know, trust in the process, even though you don't really understand it, which is a big sort of Ozark aphorism. <laughs> um, but it, it was interesting because when the book came out, family started contacting me with different oh. stories, <laughs> which is always exciting. So I had, you know, people contacting me that, you know, Uncle Bill's family uh, being like, you know, you know, he could also stop blood, which is another big traditional job for healers is to stop I'm blood in a bleeding wound. I'm fascinated by that one. I'm fascinated by that one. No one quite knew what he did. Traditionally, people would use, there's a verse in the Bible, I think it's yeah. Ezekiel 16, 6, that, pe- that traditional healers have used. But I've seen other methods as well. Um, the thing about these traditional rituals is that if you ex- sometimes if you explain them to somebody, it's it kills the charm, as it's called. So it um, a lot of times healers will say their prayers under their breath or in silence. Be- the idea being that if you, anybody hears the prayer or the charm, the power will be lost for you. Uh, and so no one quite knew what he did. Uh, there was a little bit of ritual action. So normally, you know, a healer might say a verbal charm and then blow across the wound a certain number of times. And it seems that he did at least a little bit of that, that blowing action, but I don't really know. He, he never passed that down to anyone that I know of. Um, and, uh, to my knowledge, he never passed his wart buying abilities either. Uh, But then I also learned I had a great aunt who was actually a great, great aunt um, who read tea leaves. So she read tea leaves for people. And she also could see people's emotional states in their auras. They were different colors. Hmm. And that was really fascinating to me. Um, I, I, I know hardly anything about her. Um, apart from that but that was one of those stories that came out after the book was released and I'm I'm always (laughs) happy to get you know new family stories so yeah there is a there is that connection um but I'm 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 a little bit different in my practice I never studied at you know my granny's knee or you know (laughs) I never had these big initiatory experiences um, my practice is much more influenced by my connection to the spirit world um, and my connection to that that sort of um, innate power in the world. Uh, yeah. So a lot of what I have inherited has come from those experiences, uh, not necessarily you know physical experiences or embodied experiences. Although I have learned quite a bit from from physical teachers. Um, and have been passed, like I said earlier, more than I will probably ever use. Um, yeah. I realized something when I was, as I was, I read your book and then I read Corey's book and now I'm reading Backwoods. Yeah. So through all of that, I'm gradually realizing I have, I'm not realizing this is, this is not the realization. (laughs) I do not use saints. I don't use talk to angels. I don't use Bible verses. I am very anti-Christian uh-huh. anything in my practice. And I'm realizing because it's because I have trauma. Yeah. But I feel like I'm missing out on it so much. <laughs> but I just don't, I don't see how I could bring it into what I do. 
Yeah. Because I have all this angst about it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I get that question a lot. Uh, I mean, you know, in December, I'm teaching a class on Bible magic. Um, for me, I, I've, I just cringed. <laughs> well, uh-huh. cringed. And I mean, I'll tell you, like, uh, a couple years ago, I was in the same exact position. I, I didn't want anything to do with it. I mean, I grew up in a pretty conservative household. Luckily, my parents are not that way anymore. They love what I do. They always have questions Good. about witchcraft and all this other stuff. Um, so they've kind of gone on a journey with me as well <laughs> through all of this. But yeah, I grew up in kind of a, a conservative church. And I mean, growing up as a queer youth, that was pretty traumatic at times. And so I kind of went through a journey with different, you know, Christian. I went through the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, through all of these different things, um, and eventually just like got out of it completely. But for me, it's been really interesting finding my own connection to that cultural heritage rather than a religious sort of identity. So I would consider myself probably culturally Christian, but not religiously Christian. And I think it's interesting to re-examine the, the, the roots of magical practice within that framework outside of a religious identity. So the idea that the Bible was the first spell book for me is fascinating. And, you know, the idea that for Ozarkers, there were two books that you had in your household traditionally, and that was the Farmer's Almanac and the Bible. And both of those books are powerful spell books and can be used for lots of different purposes. And I saw a quote recently, I can't remember where it was from, but it was, you know, it was basically talking about Bible magic and people kind of cringing about that. But the idea is that, you know, using the Bible for, you know, personal practice, utilizing the words, changing the words is such a transgressive act. It is witchcraft using that. And so being able to utilize or perhaps rework the the systems that traumatized us rework it's almost like alchemy you know this this distillation process you're taking the 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 base whatever the base religion the base framework spiritual framework and you are breaking it down and you are taking the parts that are useful to you and you are elevating those parts so in elevating those positions and utilizing those in a different framework in a better framework you aren't only healing yourself through that and healing the trauma that you experienced, but you're actually able to heal others of that trauma as well, if that makes sense. So it's, it's, it's using the weapon that was used against us against the aggressor. And that has been something that's very fascinating for me. And the reason why I'm doing the Bible class is to to be able to say that you know these traumatic experiences that we had at you know in the church we can heal ourselves but we can use this system in such a way that not only benefits us but benefits other people that have been abused by the system 
I don't know why I forgot to bring tissues because I cry at almost every time I talk to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but I forgot tissues. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's a it's a powerful thing that we can do for ourselves. And this and it took me a really long time to learn this. And to to move beyond hatred for the traumatic traumatic experiences that I had and move into a place where as a this is my path as a witch I am not going to let anything in my life pass through my life without utilizing it and recycling that energy in some way so I can let these experiences hold me back or I can take this, this alchemical process and I can distill those experiences down and I can actually utilize that energy to do my work and heal myself from the work and in turn heal my ancestors through that work and then also heal other people through that work. And like I said, that took me a really long time to learn that and actually part of who I learned this process from was a granny woman who used the Bible (laughs) in her work. And she was a powerful lady and sort of changed my view of my own Christian upbringing. Uh, So I grew up in kind of a charismatic church. It wasn't Pentecostal, but it was Pentecostal adjacent. (laughs) So we had, we had, you know, uh, we didn't speak in tongues or anything like that, but it was definitely, you know, based in sort of ecstatic experiences. There a lot we of had, yelling. Yeah, we had the screaming <laughs> ladies. It, we had the screaming ladies. It was a mother and a daughter, and um, I think one of the daughter's sisters or like a friend, but there were these three ladies, and you always knew certain hymns would get them, and <laughs> they they would just start screaming. And... That in and of itself was traumatizing as a kid. <laughs> yeah, my granddad used to get up in the pulpit. <laughs> and it's just oh, raise man. hell. And people, people growing like growing up in that church, people always wondered why the youth never brought friends to church and things like that. And it's like I'm, I'm not going to bring my friends here. They're going to think We're I'm afraid. insane. <laughs> but I, so I still have like you know, a a sort of traumatic aversion to that sort of stuff. But, you know, through, through working with some of my teachers who in and of themselves were from sort of Pentecostal backgrounds and things like that, I got a different understanding of the, the sort of spiritual state that is attained through that. And, you know, looking at it, not as, you know, some weird thing that, churches do but as an experience as a human experience you know this these ecstatic states that aren't necessarily limited to a specific religion but we can see them across all religions pretty much and all, even through non-religious experiences and so like you know when as a witch when i'm with the coven and we're around a bonfire and we get into this ecstatic state i remember back to my my childhood church days and i remember you know the first time i kind of made the connection being like i wonder if this is how the screaming ladies felt and i bet it was i bet you know the idea of being slain in the spirit or whatever so 
recontextualizing these experiences as not being as as not being connected to a religion but being as almost a human experience so i can allow myself allow myself to sort of get into that ecstatic state i can even call it being slain in the spirit but i don't necessarily have to connect it to any religious view or ideology or anything like that i can look at it as being a human experience rather than a specific religious experience and that that is i mean that was a healing <laughs> healing experience for me to be able to not necessarily you know cringe anymore from from experiencing that as a kid but being able to br- even bring that practice into my own life it's hard to explain but this is so not where i thought <laughs> we right. were going to go <laughs> I super didn't expect to have any of this conversation today. <laughs> but I'm glad we are. I think it's it's one of those things that in in the witchcraft community we don't talk about very much because so many of us I think have had such averse experiences with religion in general, not even just Christianity, but religion in general. And I think I think we need to talk about it a little bit more and we need to talk about the idea that we can still, you know, hold to, or I I guess, honor our, our cultural religion without adhering to religion. And we can, we can do something else. <laughs> we can take the good parts and we can, you know, leave behind the bad parts and that's okay. And in doing that, we're actually, we're helping our ancestors who weren't able to do that for themselves. So that's a big part of my work is healing spirits, healing ancestors and things like that. And and part of that healing experience is giving them opportunities that they didn't have in life. And sometimes how we're able to do that is by giving ourselves those opportunities. So my ancestors who were wounded by religion, who were killed by religion, who were, you know, suppressed and oppressed by religion being able to myself honor those cultural roots, but not the the religions and being able to grow as a spiritual being and, you know, helping them grow as spiritual beings in the process. What would you say is your biggest struggle with your practice? Um, I, I think we, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but re- reconciling, the cultural traditions with the evolving traditions. So the idea is that, you know, what is a tradition? And, you know, that's been something I've been dealing with since the beginning of this doing this work is what is a tradition? What needs to be retained as a tradition and what doesn't? Uh, In the Ozarks, we have a lot of traditional practices that do not need to be modernized um, so, I mean, some witches will know this from other cultural contexts, but the Ozarks, we have our own black cat bone ritual. Do you know that one of becoming, mm-hmm. to become a witch? Well, I know of one. I don't know if it's so, your specific one. <laughs> well, in the Ozarks, if you want to become a witch, a powerful witch, uh, or a powerful magical practitioner in general, you kill a black cat and boil it and you collect the bones and throw them into a river and whatever floats Upstream? you collect. Oh, Okay. 
Uh, well, yeah, I know the upstream one. <laughs> upstream is probably, I mean, that's kind of a transgressive uh, direction. So yeah, there's probably lots of lots of those. I'm sure it's like, yeah. But basically you collect them and you make a talisman out of them and things like that. But that ritual doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, brought into the modern world, I don't think. Uh, there's lots of traditional healing healing plants and remedies that have been used that are po- definitely poisonous uh, <laughs> and shouldn't be brought into the the modern world. So it's been reconciling, you know, where where do we need to encourage evolution in the practice and where do we need to retain tradition? And I think for me, like I was talking about earlier, you know, this idea of simplifying things and how that's an important part of Ozark practice. For me, everything gets simplified back to the heart of the practice. And the heart of the practice is the connection to the land, the connection to that innate magic in the land, the connection to the spirit world, and then this connection to this simplicity. So where you can do it with one word rather than two, do it with one word. As one healer told me, you know, as a as a healer, you should be able to do everything you need to do in a empty jail cell. And so that for me is the tradition, the big tradi- the big T tradition. And so everything goes back to that. So the other stuff is evolution. So, you know, traditionally uh, Ozark healers would only use wooden spoons to stir their medicines. If you use a metal spoon, will it negate everything? Oh, yeah. I, I don't think so. Uh, for, for me personally, again, I go back to that, What what is the heart of all of this? And the heart is that intention and connection to magic and connection to your own work. So for me, it's interesting collecting the traditions the the specifics the the formulas things like that but it's also interesting for me to you know be spirit led and go with the flow and see where that takes me as well and i always encourage people like you know even the stuff in my book and i have a book coming out next year that's a spell book so it's going to be ri- rites and rituals <laughs> and recipes and all sorts of stuff and even in that book i say listen, if you don't have access to these plants, here are some plants that you might have access to that you can replace them with. Or if you don't want to use any of them, you can do this. So I'm all about variations. And I think that, you know, that makes a lot of traditional witches very upset. I've met them. We've had arguments before. (laughs) Um, And I understand where they're coming from. But from an Ozark perspective, Ozarkers have always been survivalists we have always utilized what we had in the house what we could grow on the land or what we could gather and so there wasn't a lot of specific tools specific ingredients used for specific things i met a traditional healer who only healed with water she would pray over cups of water that she would give to people i met a healer who would pray and read bible verses over people's prescription medications uh and Hmm. that that was her practice and so it's a this is a very ozark way of working about it you know you work with what you've got and that for me is, it's such a powerful idea and it's taken me a while to kind of come to terms with it. But the idea being that 
as a, as a magical practitioner, as somebody who is gifted, you shouldn't let anything stand in your way. So if you are needing to heal somebody, but you don't have your spoon that you normally stir your medicines with, you shouldn't let that stop you. You should, you should heal that person with what you've got. I mean, that's, it's a very traditional way of working too. And I understand that, you know, there's lots of different practices out there. And so if your practice requires a knife that was consecrated under an Aries full moon or whatever, like that's rude. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's fine if that's a part of your practice, but I think that, you know, one of the one and one of the troubles I have is with I guess dealing with people that have these blinders on in, in in the community, and so part of my practice is doing foolish things that makes them sort of <laughs> come to terms with different practices. Are you a troll? Um, I, I will neither. I'll admit it. I'll, I'll admit, admit I am. <laughs> I I I like to think of being a sort of divine <laughs> troll. Um, I'm working on behalf of my ancestors while I troll. Are you poking people with sticks? I do. <laughs> I like it. I mean, me too. I, I don't know. I just, I, I, and it seems to come from like this, the more ceremonial side of things. And I, the rigidity of practice can be very powerful but the idea is that that there isn't one practice. There are so many ways of getting to where you need to go. And I think that that is what I want people to understand. It's like, you know, your practice may be doing this. This other person might be doing this other thing. It's okay. In the Ozarks, I've collected so many variations of practices from family to family. And that's a big part of Ozark culture is everything is based in the family. So practices differ. I I use the example in the book of the horseshoe. So whether you hang the horseshoe with the prongs facing up or down for good luck. And it's a 50-50 split in the Ozarks of whether you do it, whether you hang it up or whether you hang it down. And it's like, well, which one's right? Well, we can't really say either is correct i mean they're both correct in their own way it's about the intention you put into it and so that that's a big thing is is you know getting people sort of into that mindset that there are other ways of doing things i've taught workshops before where there were ozarkers who were like they did not believe a word i said because i mentioned a practice that their family did differently you know, or a, a holiday that they celebrated differently or whatever. And now you're forever wrong. And now I'm forever wrong. And it's like, it's interesting that somebody might think that, but it's, it's like, well, yeah, every family is going to do things differently. Every community is going to do things differently. There isn't one big book of Ozark practices, just like there isn't one big book of witchcraft in general. It's like, there's, you know, all of these different facets and the, the, that's what makes the, the work interesting is being able to look at all of these different things. And, you know, maybe somebody's doing something better than you are and maybe you can incorporate that. And so it's, yeah, but I, I, oh, I have, that reminds me of a question. <laughs> that reminds me of a question. This is from summer. If you're a practitioner of Ozark folk magic, where do you draw the line at appropriation versus appreciation when you're adopting or adapting methods 
such as from indigenous American or hoodoo into your practice. And summer is actually um, Cherokee. So yeah, the question of appropriation. It's a complicated area just because it, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we have to deal with in the modern world, um, especially with cultural cultural sort of traditions like the Ozarks that has so many holes. You know, there's a lot of things that we don't have because healers have passed on without passing those down or folklorists haven't collected them. You know, so much of the practice has been for a while now drawn from what the folklorist collected back at the turn of the 20th century. So Vance Randolph, Mary Parler, Otto Ernest Rayburn, people like that. And there's a lot of holes and a lot of blanks. And the temptation is to pick from other cultural practices, specifically in this area, it's indigenous practices and then Southern root work, conjure, hoodoo. And to pick from those practices to fill in the blanks in our own. And I always encourage people (laughs) to look for alternatives to that. These other, I mean, these are individual practices heritage-based practices that, you know, we can't just isolate certain things and pull them out from these, these contexts. And, you know, everybody thinks because hoodoo root work is a folk magic that it is easily broken apart and, you know, you can just take whatever you want, but that is still a culture-based practice. You know, there's, and the debate, rages on about hoodoo and root work um and and you know whether it is african or european or indigenous the point is is that all of this work is in a context i wouldn't want people pulling ozark practices out of context you know i wouldn't want that either so i always encourage people to fill in the blanks with your own spirit led practices or look to your cultural ancestry to fill in the blanks. One example of this is, so in the Ozarks, we have red cedar, which isn't a cedar. It's actually a juniper. And there's lots of cultural ties back to Europe. Uh, Highland tradition used a lot of, Scottish tradition used a lot of juniper smoke as a smoke to fumigate illness and spirits and all sorts of stuff. When, you know, and also in German folk magic. But you know, the the people encountered red cedar when they got to the New World, specifically in Appalachia and the Ozarks. And so at Ozark people, we have a, a love of red cedar as a cleansing plant. And so, you know, I encourage people, you know, if you can replace white sage, for instance, with cedar, you you get the same benefit. And but this may be more culturally appropriate <laughs> to to your ancestry. Also, if you want to if you want to incorporate in practices from you know your own European ancestry. Personally, I work a lot with wormwood and mugwort because these were very important in my German and British Isles uh, ancestors' lives. So I incorporate a lot of that into my practice rather than picking from you know, cultural practices that are already so, yeah, the, the, I mean, and it's, and it's always the, the cultures that are already marginalized that get 
picked over so hard and it, it just, it upsets me a lot because I have indigenous friends and indigenous family and I understand their struggle. <laughs> I understand, you know, where they're coming from when they are angry about people using white sage and things like that. Um, I will say that it, as far as Ozark traditional practice goes, there's a lot of practices we have that are probably derived from indigenous sources, but we don't know. Um, so for instance, again, to go back to the red cedar, the, the, the colonizers that came would have already had this love of juniper. They would have found a juniper in the new world, which is red cedar, Juniperus virginiana, Eastern red cedar. But the indigenous people were already using red cedar for those purposes, specifically people in the Southeast, Muscogee Creek, Cherokee, Yuchi, Kosati, um, all these different groups in the Southeast and the Appalachians. Um, they were already using red cedar as a smoke. They were using it as a wash to heal with. They were using it for these sort of magical medical purposes. And so now, you know, when in the Ozarks, we use red cedar for all sorts of stuff. It's hard to say who influenced who. Um, we can't parse it out. And there's a lot of practices like that. Um, there's a tradition in the Ozarks of going to water. So, you know, you go to a river to cleanse off illnesses and hexes and things like that. Well, that's a pretty ancient practice within, you know, lots of European traditions. It certainly uh, is symbolized in baptism, things like that. But that's also a, a huge part of indigenous practice, specifically in the, the Southeast, you know, going to water to cleanse off illnesses and things. So it's, it's hard to parse out those traditions. Um, but then I've also encountered people who uh, are a little bit more blatant with their, their appropriation. Um, so they, they work with Indian guides, as they call them, things like that, um, which is, <laughs> is uh, always interesting. Um, there is there is a trend in the Ozarks. Every you know, everybody has a Cherokee granny. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of, you know, at one point that was based in truth um, because historically Appalachian hill folk have been mixed race usually, not just indigenous and and you know European, but also uh, heavy amounts of black influence, African influence. Um, and so at one point that was you know, a truce. And today it's, it's part of, I don't know, it's this weird part of the culture. It's like everybody claims the heritage, but nobody has a connection to it. And so it's a weird area to exist in. <laughs> um, but I always encourage people, especially my own students that, you know, if you come across a blank in, in, in your tradition, if you don't know what to do for a certain thing, um, take it back to your your ancestry. Take it to your ancestors. See you know see what they would have done in that situation, and then bring it forward to our time. Um, I think that that is a much more. I think it's a much more fulfilling path um, because you're you're actually identifying with your ancestors rather than you know just picking and choosing. Um, there's there's generally always at least somebody in my classes that that is like you know is ozark practice the same as hoodoo no it's not <laughs> uh that's, hoodoo. that's that seems like a weird question to ask <laughs> well 
it it's weird, but there are there have been certain individuals across the internet world who have, you know, equated the two together. Um, yeah, the same thing with Appalachian folk magic. So use you know equating hoodoo and Appalachian folk magic as the same thing, and it's not. That- <laughs> it's not. It's just. I mean, they're just two different traditions. They may bear similar uh, practices, but I mean, you can say the same thing about you know. So is Ozark traditional magic the same as German folk magic? Well, no, obviously it's not. They bear a lot of similarities because German people influenced Ozark folk practice, but you can't say it's the same thing. So I'm not practicing German folk magic. I'm practicing Ozark folk magic, you know? (laughs) Actually, that reminds me of that other question. This is from Diane, and she wants to know what would you say is the biggest similarity versus the biggest difference between Ozark and Appalachian folk magic? Um, I I mean, the biggest similarity is that they're the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, seriously, they are. The, the, the differences are, like I said earlier, family to family. Location. And so, um, <laughs> location, seriously, yeah. Um, Ozark folk practice is much more tied uh, to the Ozark landscape. So, you know, in certain verbal charms, uh, prayers that would have named certain mountains in Appalachia generations ago, now name certain areas in the Ozarks as a part of the prayers and traditions. Um, but I mean, the, the practices are, are family based. So, you know, when the Appalachian Hill folk came to the Ozarks, that started a lot of the, the separation. Um, I haven't really encountered any practices in the Ozarks that are, that I would call Ozark specific, apart from just the family to family variations. Mostly you find them in verbal charms because verbal charms are usually always passed down orally. And so they change a lot from, from person to person sometimes. Um, and so those tend to be kind of different. The, the, the plants uh, are very similar, but there are some Appalachian plants that we don't have here in the Ozarks. So yellow root, for instance, uh, we don't have here in the Ozarks, um, but we just called golden seal yellow root. <laughs> so it's used for the same purposes, but we just don't have the Appalachian plant here. Um, but they're very similar. So Ozark people, you know, if, if I, if I meet people that are really wanting to operate within the Ozark system, I tell them, you know, if you, if you've come across blanks in the practice, again, you know, look to your cultural heritage or look to Appalachia to fill in those blanks. I always recommend the Foxfire Guide series. Oh, yay. (laughs) Because I, I, I showed my grandpa the Foxfire Guides and my grandpa is very Ozark. Um, and he knew exactly everything they were talking about because it's, <laughs> it's, it's essentially the same. Um, so yeah, if, if you're wanting to work within the Ozark practice and you, you need to fill in some blanks, usually the App- Appalachia can do that. The, the, our cultural backgrounds and heritage, our religious backgrounds, our ancestries are not so different that, uh, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I don't think any Appalachian people would get offended by Ozark people borrowing. And I, likewise, Ozark people, we don't get offended by Appalachian people borrowing. We are still considered a part of the greater Appalachian cultural region. So if you get offended by me borrowing, you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what has brought you the most joy in your practice? I think for me, 
you know, every time I do any work, uh, you know, healing or working for somebody, I always get something out of it. And I think that that is kind of a forgotten part of the practice. A lot of times, especially if, you know, if, if it's a practitioner that works for people, works for clients a lot, we, we kind of tend to turn it into a job sometimes. And one of the things for me that I've really tried to encourage within myself is getting out of the work as much for myself as I am giving to this other person. So if I am healing a person, I, I want to heal through that process a little bit too. And I think that that's an important part of the practice in general. And it, you know, is what keeps us going. It keeps us recharged. So learning that has been really important. Also developing just a more peaceful relationship with the spirit world. Uh, one of my teachers taught me a very good phrase called, she said, a, it's a kinder exorcism. Uh, so it's this idea that, you know, you don't just go into a situation, you know, guns ablazing with exorcisms, you know, throwing spirits out the windows and stuff like that. It's, it, it's much more, what she taught me was much more based in, you know, spiritism, the, like Alan Kardec, spiritism, spiritualism system, that philosophy, the idea that we're all on this journey, you know, the worst spirit is, you know, still has the opportunity to change, to grow. They may be doing some, you know, bad things, but we can help encourage them not to do those things. And so this kinder exorcism, this idea that, you know, through the process of interacting with these spirits, helping them elevate, helping them heal, helping them grow. We heal our own spirits through that as well. So that has been a really important part of my practice and something that I think on a daily basis, I think about this idea that, you know, whenever I go into a spiritual situation, if it's with something that, you know, people might call a demon or a haint or a, you know, a poltergeist or something like that, I always go into the situation thinking, how can I help this spirit? How can I, how can I help them heal, help, help them elevate? And through that process, you know, help myself and help my ancestors also, who many of my ancestors were not so nice, um, but I still want the best for them. I still want them to grow, um, you know, wherever they are. And uh, so, yeah, that, I think that, that relationship with the work, getting out of the work as much as you put into the work, and then also just being in this sort of balance with the spirit world rather than working against it. Do you ever feel like you have imposter syndrome? All the time. <laughs> How do you deal with that? That's surprising um, to hear. I do. So I, well, <laughs> so I, every time I do like a workshop or anything, I never think I'm Ozark enough. Um, <laughs> I, I and it sounds so stupid, but you know, I I grew up out in the woods, but I grew up, you know, with electricity. <laughs> so I'm not How saying dare you. this. I know. And, you know, for the for a long time I you know, there I didn't want to be an Ozark or I didn't want to be identified with a hillbilly, things like that. And so I my brother's kind of the same way. We taught ourselves or I guess we we sort of brought ourselves out of that heritage we taught ourselves a different accent which is why I don't yeah, really you have don't an sound accent. Like and what I expected at all 
I always, you know, people comment on that. <laughs> when I'm out, you know, giving lectures and stuff, people don't believe I'm from the Ozarks because I don't have the accent. And part of me, you know, it used to be worse in the past, but lately I, I don't let it get to me as much anymore, mostly because I'm so fervent about changing the stereotypes of the area um, that, you know, I, I tell people, no, I, you know, my people have been here since, you know, early 1800s before that they were from Appalachia. So I, you know, I'm culturally very Ozark. I might not have grown up in, you know, the uh, rural backwoods area, but that doesn't mean anything. And it also, you know, where I live specifically has had a huge cultural sort of overturn in the past 50 years or so. We have here a huge Latinx population. We have a mar- huge Marshallese population here. And we have lots of different pl- people coming into the area. And we have to redefine what we mean by Ozarker. So Ozarker no, no longer, for me anyway, means you know, you were here since the early 1800s and you come from mostly European background from Appalachia. For me, that's, you know, a lot of the traditions, the cultural heritage might come from that sort of starting point. But today, you know, when we talk about traditional healers, we are talking not only about people that work from European ancestry, but the Latinx healers that are in the area. They are as much Ozarker to me as anybody else is. If you are living on the land here, you are an Ozarker. So, yeah, I still have the imposter syndrome, though, um, you know, especially being, you know, without the accent, also being queer. Um, that has been a huge thing. So in where I live, I mean, it's, it's, there's queer people everywhere, <laughs> but I'm in sort of more of an urbanized area. But, you know, when I go out to smaller towns and stuff like that, there's definitely parts of myself that I have to hide. And in, in hiding those parts of myself, I feel like an outsider. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I identify with the position of the witch so much is because traditionally in in the Ozarks, the witch was always already a marginalized person in the community. You know, they were queer sometimes, or they had certain disabilities, things like that, or they were a widow, an elderly person. So yeah, I, I definitely, you know, going out certain places, I I definitely uh, feel weird about it sometimes, but then I meet amazing healers and traditional knowledge keepers, many of whom are queer themselves. And it, it definitely encourages me. Also, just like I said, connecting to that position of the witch really is encouraging that the witch has always been on the fringes of society. And that is in part um, a source of power for them. So do you just kind of remind yourself of who you are? Yeah. And also just, you know, I tend to be very forgiving to people. Uh, So I'm a cancer and so I can't help myself sometimes. (laughs) I, I, I tend to be very forgiving. I tend to think, you know, when, when I, when I'm faced with those situations, I, I tend to just think, well, you know, they don't quite understand the situation. They don't understand who I am. So I'm going to let it go. And I mean, that, Aww. that, I know. <laughs> I'm a Taurus with an Aries moon and that's not what I would do at all. <laughs> 
But we need people like that too. <laughs> we need people to confront people too. Because I'm not very good with confrontations. I would rather just be a silent observer sometimes. Um, but you know, we need we need confrontational people. And I've definitely met confrontational people, even you know, in small small towns, communities, things like that, that are certainly. Uh, willing to to raise their voice if needed. I'm just not one of those people. But yeah, when I, what I would encourage people to focus on is, you know, go inward, you know, even, you know, everyone around you might, might be, be telling you, you know, that you don't belong or whatever, but you absolutely belong because, I mean, from my viewpoint, m- magic is neutral. Magic is this innate force in the world around us. It's akin to nature itself. And so how can we how can we use magic to separate people so much when magic itself doesn't discriminate? That's so great. (laughs) (laughs) I know it took me a second to process it, but I love it. And I wish, I wish, I mean, so Ozark traditional magic has taught me that traditional practitioners have, have, has taught me about the, 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 that sort of neutral magic, that, that forgiving magic. But I wish that more Ozark practitioners and Ozark people would actually live that. Um, but it seems like everyone wishes that. (laughs) Uh, absolutely. I mean, I wish people in general would live that, but that's kind of always been the case in the Ozarks is that the traditional healers and practitioners have always existed in this sort of realm that we couldn't necessarily talk about. Um, it's always been the sort of healers against the rest of the world. So, but it's changing. What do you wish somebody had told you when you were first starting out? That it's okay not to believe everything. Uh, I think when I started out, you know, I, I, I kind of went into this as more of a folklorist, more of a writer before I was a practitioner. I grew up out in the woods. So as a kid, I, I had a lots of weird experiences. I saw fairies on my parents' land. I talked to trees. I was kind of a weird magic kid. And, you know, some of that was lost through high school and college. And then I really got interested in the Ozarks from like a folklore academic standpoint. And I I did collecting and and research in the Ozarks for years before I met one of my teachers who looked me in the eyes and said, you know, you have this power too, right? (laughs) So she kind of identified me and kind of threw me for a loop. But from that point, I, I really felt like if I met any, any practices or anything that I didn't really identify with or trust or believe in, that somehow that was negating my power. And that's not the case at all. So I've met, I've met witches who don't believe in the spirit world or deities what? or I know it's very odd, but I've met them. Oh, I actually don't necessarily believe in deities, but yeah. And <laughs> I, not, I mean, it's not about me. I just thought it, it's interesting that you brought it up. And I have a mixed relationship with deities. I don't really, you know, identify as, as like a theist in general, but I still have kind of this connection to the spirit world. But I've met witches who don't really believe in ghosts or they, you know, they don't believe in ghosts that necessarily have a presence in the world, things like that. 
and I've met lots of different people with lots of different complicated belief systems. There was, there was, <laughs> that's, that's a kind way to put that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and uh, to be honest, it all interests me. It doesn't matter. Like whatever you believe in is going to interest me and I may not believe it, but it, it's going to interest me. <laughs> but that was like a big learning experience that just being able to say it may, I may not believe it, but it's interesting was very hard for a while, especially with Ozark traditional stuff, because so much of it's based in Christianity or this Christian worldview. And so for a long time, I, you know, I was like, well, if I'm not a, a Christian, how can I be a healer within this tradition? How can I, how can I say that I am working within this, but not have this worldview and it it really took meeting some very kind teachers, Ozark teachers, living and dead, um, to kind of shift my worldview to you know that you don't necessarily have to identify with these these sort of religious traditions. You're one of the messages I got was you know your ancestors weren't always Christian. Your ancestors have you know probably been a wide variety of different spiritual beliefs and things. And so, it, you know, connecting more to that, that, that spiritual center that goes beyond religion, beyond these religious ties was really helpful for me. And being able to say, you know, I may not believe this, but it's interesting. And, you know, that's okay. You don't, you may not believe a lot of the things that I believe in, and that's okay. Um, that it's such a simple lesson, but it was really hard to learn. <laughs> um, but it influenced my practice greatly because I, I see myself now as not having any, any boundaries to my own. I'm not self-imposing any of those, those boundaries or those, those blockages anymore. So I can just kind of go where I need to go without my own mind getting in the way, I guess. Mm. Who are the three biggest influences on your practice? Well, I think probably Uncle Bill was, I mean, he's still a huge inspiration for me. Uh, I mean, you know, even though I don't know much about what he actually did, just the experiences that I had with him. Uh, I also collected some interesting stories. He was kind of a storyteller. Um, he, he's always been a, a pretty huge inspiration for me. I have to say also, I mean, Mary Parler. So she was one of the early folklorists. She was actually later on in her life married to Vance Randolph, who's probably the most famous Ozark folklorist. Um, but because he is, I've met people that knew him. He, <laughs> he's not on my top three list. <laughs> um, but, he, but Mary Parler is. Mary Parler's collection rivals Vance Randolph's collection folklore, but she never published anything. Um, she <laughs> she taught folklore and she had her students collect folklore. She collected everything, but she never published any of it. Um, it seems that she really did collect things for the love of collecting, for the love of knowing and experiencing. And that has always been something every time that, you know, I'm writing and I want to include, you know, all of this information that maybe I should be keeping secret. I always think back to, to her and be like, you know, it's okay to not say everything. And it's okay even not to publish everything. Some things you can just keep for yourself. 
Um, and that was another lesson that I learned from, from one of my teachers also, who's probably in that top three as well. She was the one that identified me, or I guess the gift that I had. Um, she kind of kicked my butt on a lot of things. And That's what we need. Yeah, I absolutely needed that at the time. Uh, and she also was the one that gave me the, the image of the, excuse me, the kinder exorcism. She was a really nice lady who worked in the spirit world and helped heal spirits and ghosts and was very, very kind and was very unapologetic and very unafraid. And I think that those are qualities that I try to encourage within myself, keeping things simple and also being unafraid to do the work and also just being unapologetic for being who you are. That's what I need in my life. Absolutely. We all need it. Especially now, because I feel like, you know, in the witch community, there's so many diverse voices that are coming through. And I think that that needs to continue to happen. I think people need to be unafraid to speak. And they need to be unafraid to sometimes call people out where they need to be called out. What do you dislike about the witch community? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come back up. We'll come back up. I think we've kind of already talked a little bit about it, but I think the big thing for me is the, the everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people tend to get so set in their own practice because their practice is so important to them. But we have to realize that our practice is very important to us and it, you know, other people's practices are as important to them too. (laughs) And I think that that's something that we forget that, our personal practice can be divinely inspired, can be spirit-led, can be based on these very complicated lineages and all this other stuff. And other people may be doing other things with the same credentials, you know? And, and so I think that's the big thing for me is that we stop talking to each other when people's practices differ from our own. And, you know, it's I think it's a human thing. It's a self-preservation thing. We want to our practice is important and has been life-changing, so we want to keep it that way. It's just, you know, sometimes we get a little preachy, and I think we, we start to repeat the, the traumas that we experienced in organized religion, and we start repeating those in the magic community uh, on other people, and it's not right. Uh, I think we need to have more communication. We need to talk about diverse practices, and we need to talk from a point of view where you know we recognize that everybody's work is is as important to them as our work is to us what do you love about the witch community i love i really love the diversity i you know in writing this book i've gotten emails and comments from people from a wide variety of practices not just from within folk magic i've gotten you know stuff from ceremonial people And, you know, everybody has such diverse, complicated beliefs, and they're all very interesting. And, you know, what I love is being able to sort of show people how they can connect to certain parts of their practices in maybe a different way. I think, you know, of the people that have contacted me, you know, a lot of them say, you know, I'm not a part of this tradition, but this certain thing in your book really spoke to me and I actually incorporated it into my practice and has really helped, things like that. And I think that 
you know, there is such a potential within the community that we can all be doing that for each other. You know, we can all be communicating and talking and saying, oh man, you know, this is a very important practice that, you know, a lot of people really haven't known about. Thank you for sharing this. Now we can, we can maybe incorporate this into our own practice. But I think the communication gets broken down a lot. But I think that's what really excites me is the potential for so much interaction and inter and exchanging of practices. And I think that's the way it's always been. In the Ozarks, healers and traditional practitioners, they don't get to see each other very much. But, you know, that's been changing with the Internet age. And I've met people that have, you know, monthly potlucks with witches in the woods and stuff like that. Oh, why don't I live there? (laughs) (laughs) And I think that this this has always been what practitioners have done. And in the Ozarks, you know, used to, it was so important to have that community within your community because you couldn't always share these practices with the outside world, but you could share them with other practitioners. And we have such a potential in this wider witch community. Like, have we forgotten that we're weirdos in the world? (laughs) Like, have we really forgotten that? And we need to stick together. We need to share together. You know, the world at large is generally speaking, always going to be against us. We don't have to be against each other. Like we can be unified (laughs) and that's fine. Yell that, yell that one. (laughs) Well, I think we've just, we've gotten, we've gotten kind of spoiled because especially, you know, in the U S like now everybody is on this astrology, which, craze and we aren't getting the backlash against society generally speaking um until our next satanic panic comes along probably can't wait i know right (laughs) um but we we haven't experienced the same things that our ancestors experienced and it's made us spoiled uh and it's made us start to infight uh against each other and i think that we need to remember that all of us as a community, we are treading a very thin line still, as spoiled as we are, we're still treading a very thin line between being socially acceptable and taboo. And I think, like I said, the world is always going to be against us. We don't have to be against each other. And I, that's that's my big soapbox message. But anyway. That's been more and more on my mind over this past month. Like, how long do we get to ride this wave before it crashes? Right. Who would you like to hear on the show answering questions like this and telling stories? Well, I mean, I really love Byron Ballard. Do you know Byron? I don't. Uh, She's an Appalachian writer. You should look into her books. They're great. So she came out with a book. Well, she came out with two books this year. Um, she has one about Appalachian folk magic, as well as one about, I think it's called, excuse me, Seasons of Magical Life, about seasonal work. I've heard of that. In practice. Uh, she's great. Uh, I would love to hear her talk. She has a very nice voice. <laughs> and she's been very kind. She's she's provided blurbs for my books, for, for Inside the Book, twice now. Uh, and she's been very kind. Um, but yeah, I love her. One of my 
favorite people in the world is Professor Charles Porterfield. Do you know Professor Charles Porterfield? I don't. So he is an old style Bible conjure person. But then I he, definitely should just for yeah. my own well-being. <laughs> but he is a he is a Texan through and through. Oh. He is also Jewish, so he brings a lot of interesting perspectives to the community and he is widely respected in in the Hoodoo community. He's great. I can't say enough good things about him. He's also incredibly funny. Um, so yeah. That's perfect cuz I'm all about laughing. Right? And like me, he would literally talk to a brick wall uh, if that was the only thing around. So, Is there anything you wish more people were talking about? Oh, I just wish people were talking, talking more in general. <laughs> I think that, you know, I think we're, we're living in very tumultuous time and I, I think we have so many voices in so many different areas. And I think, you know, the witch community, we can really benefit from voices outside the witch community. And I think outside voices could benefit from ours as well. Specifically, like, you know, I have friends that are, you know, anarcho-communists, you know, like want, <laughs> wanting to burn everything <laughs> to the ground. And I've had really good conversations with them about incorporating magical practices into their works. I, you know, did a little uh, zine for them about, you know, runes and sigils for anti-fascism, uh, all this other stuff. I think we can benefit from each other and, as well as, so uh, I think last year, it might've been 2020, I did a, a talk on Ozark witchcraft, both sort of the stereotypical views of witches in the Ozarks, as well as the reality. Um, so I did this talk for a local chapter of the satanic temple uh tsd and uh they're a really interesting group to to look at they do actually a lot of very good uh work (laughs) especially right now with i join them (laughs) yeah they're great but that's one of those areas where like i'm like oh yeah i gave a talk to tsd and people are like what (laughs) you're going to hell now yeah (laughs) but it's like we just i think that we we have so many I don't know, weird boundaries that we need to examine. And boundaries are good when when they are actually beneficial. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of boundaries are are based in some pretty prejudiced ideas and, and worldviews. And we need to examine those. And we need to see where maybe what, as a witch witchcraft community or a folk magic community or whatever, where our work can really benefit other groups that aren't in our circle. And I think that those connections are really important. And I really want to see that happening more and more. I have two questions that I did not tell you what they are. Okay. Well, they're not even questions. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of demands. (laughs) Please recommend something to the listeners. It can be, it does not have to be witchcraft or paranormal or supernatural or anything related. It can be a sandwich that you really like. Just recommend something. Well, one of my other great passions in life, uh, which I always recommend to everybody, is Dungeons and Dragons. Ooh. Um, I have uh, DM'd local groups for years now, and I think that it is a powerful, powerful form of therapy if you can get into the right group. <laughs> and yeah, it's great. 
everyone should be playing D anD. d That's one of my favorite recommendations. So far. <laughs> I love it. I actually, I'm such. Uh, I mean, I'm such a nerd about a lot of things, but D anD. d is actually one of them. And I have a, a friend who did a, a counseling degree. Um, and his area was game therapy, uh, including D and D. So actually, using D and D in settings with um, like veterans with PTSD, um, being able to work through a lot of complicated situations in a fantasy world that you wouldn't normally be able to work through in reality. So yeah, I'm not going to get into that, but it's very <laughs> interesting. And even if you just you know want to do it for fun, you know it's it's great, great. Great fun, great pastime. And I've got a break in here. This is Kim. There was an audio bit of weirdness here where my half of the interview, just the rest of it is just gone. So what happened in the rest of the interview is that Brandon, I asked Brandon to tell a story as I do, and he tells a great story. So be sure to listen to that. And then I've edited to where he pretty much just closes the interview out. So let's get to that story. Okay. Um, well, this one wasn't necessarily a family story, but one of my favorite ones. Have you heard about the woodpecker woman? So the story goes uh, back in the hills a um, long time ago, probably 100, 150 years ago or so, there was an old woman that uh, lived off in a cabin by herself in the woods close enough to town to where she could go in to get supplies and things like that when she needed to. Every time she went to town, people would uh, kind of move to the other side of the street and, you know, people would, wouldn't make eye contact with her because in the, the town she was known to be a witch. Uh, and they always called her Red Cap because she, she wore a red bonnet on her head wherever she went. Uh, and so she'd go to town and buy what she needed in silence and then she'd uh, wander back out into the hills back to her house. Well, even though the community looked at her as a witch, they all saw that she was valuable as a healer and a midwife. So people would secretly go out to the hills to see her, even though they knew that if anybody in the town you know, recognized that they, they did this, they would probably be ostracized as well. But everybody in town did it. They would go out and she would happily heal them, even though you know, a day before they had uh, walked to the other side of the street that sort of thing. She happily healed them in silence. And this went on for a little while uh, until one of her customers was uh, dissatisfied and started spreading around town that uh, old Red Cap was, uh, was poisoning people, that uh, the magics that she was giving out was actually uh, demons that she was giving to people. And slowly the, the town started turning against her until at one point they uh, gathered together a, a band, a group uh, with torches, and they decided that they were going to put this problem to an end once and for all. So they all went out to the woods late at night, and they called her out of the house. And she, she came out gladly, welcomed them all, asked them if they wanted something to eat. And they, they grabbed up the woman, and they uh, were, were going to hang her. And uh, they kind of, they gathered around, they put the noose over the tree and everything. And um, as they were doing this, um, the, the crowd was throwing all sorts of insults and accusations at her. And uh, she just happily took them all on herself, as, as it needed to be, in silence. And 
Before they uh, put the noose around her neck, she just smiled and she said, I'll be seeing you all again sometime. And in a flash of firelight that extinguished all of the torches around her, she, uh, she disappeared and they just heard a bird flying up into the treetops. Well, this spooked the group, and they all uh, dispersed and went back to town and hardly ever talked about it. But from then on, every time people would go out to the woods, they would always see a big red-headed woodpecker flying through the trees. And as it called through the trees, they always knew it was a curse upon their their own heads for what they did to the poor woman. The end. It's one of many sort of origin stories for the peleated woodpecker that's pretty common here they call them so the ozarkers we have lots of animals that are called witch animals um not because they're necessarily evil because but because they're seen as being magical uh, and sometimes they're seen as being you know wizards and witches in disguise and the woodpecker is one of them the big peleated woodpecker um so they're they've traditionally been used in different magic acts and certain verbal charms invoke the woodpecker, but that's one of the origin stories for why the woodpecker has a red head, that it's this, uh, the, it's the woodpecker woman in disguise as a woodpecker. Um, but the people also call them wood hens, um, because they're very large. Um, my favorite name for them is Lord God Almighty, uh, which is a, a, a name that people often call out as it's flying through the, the woods. Yeah, they're they're very large. They have a very interesting presence. Uh, and I've been out in the woods before. Usually you only see one or two of them around. And, you know, I've been out where one time where there was about five or six flying around in this sort of spot in the woods. And it was a little spooky. <laughs> uh, so I have a website, ozarkhealing.com. Um, it, that links to, uh, Ozark healing traditions. As far as books go, I do have the book that came up this year, Ozark Folk Magic, Plants, Prayers, and Healing. I also have another book that's coming out next year, probably in June. It is also from Llewellyn Worldwide. It's going to be called, uh, the Ozark Mountain Spellbook. It's very exciting. It's going to have spells, rituals, recipes, basically everything that I couldn't put into the first book because of, uh, space requirements. I also have a Facebook page, Ozark Healing Traditions. I have an Instagram, at Ozark Healing Traditions, and a Twitter, at Ozark Healing. Um, As far as events go, I do have two classes left this year, virtual classes, um, both of which you can still buy tickets for. Um, But if I'm doing any other classes or anything like that, Uh, all of the information and tickets will be on my website. I also announce those on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, I do frequently do um, mostly virtual classes, virtual appearances, but in the spring, I'm going to start doing more in-person signings and um, hopefully some in-person workshops and things like that. But information on all that stuff will be on the website and uh, Facebook page, across social media, all of that. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. I want to thank Brandon again for being on the show and talking to me. I had a really good time talking to him, and I hope everyone goes to check out his website and the classes that he offers. He has some that are recordings that are available for purchase, and I hope to see him at Anahata's next year. I hope to see everyone there, but I definitely hope to see Brandon there. And thank you again, Brandon, for being on the show. 
And just a reminder, be sure you go check out the giveaway on Instagram for the Bright Witch Brews tea and for a Your Average Witch mug. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Your Average Witch. You can find us all around the internet on Instagram at Your Average Witch Podcast, Twitter at Average Witch Pod, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Your Average Witch Podcast, at Your Average Witch Podcast.com, and at your favorite podcast service. Want to help the podcast grow? Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You just might hear your review read at the end of the next episode. If you'd like to recommend someone for the podcast, like to be on it yourself, or if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, send an email to youraveragewitchpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the moon changes.